Henry mentioned, this is the third Sunday of Advent, time we celebrate um, the anticipation of love. And the text tonight, if you have your Bibles, I'd enjoy it if you would turn there now. And there are going to be other places in the Scripture that I'm going to quote, refer to. We're not going to have them on the screen, but when you hear me talk about them, you might want to um, turn to them as well. Hosea 14, for instance, verses 1 to 6. Exodus 33, the end of the chapter, those passages. But here we have John writing again as an old man, and he says this beginning in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 12. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation and atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Before the election in November, there was a Catholic periodical, a journal, that asked this question. Can you tell me the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in terms of their policies? Within 10 minutes, they had 100 responses. Here's a sample. I just hate the way he talks. In my opinion, the guy's washed up, he's demented. I just feel that one guy cares about the little guy a lot more than the other. A hundred responses and they're all like that. All focused on personality rather than policy. As if your feelings and my feelings, our subjective opinions, can guide us in knowing who a person really is and what they'll do. 24 years ago, I was sitting in Orlando in a class taught by R.C. Sproul, a man I've revered through decades of my life. He lectured all morning. And at lunchtime, a couple of guys said to me, do you want to go to lunch? And I said, sure, I'll go. And we went, entered the restaurant, sat at the table, and one guy looked at the other and said, so what did you think of the lecture? The guy said, well, I don't really care. I'm auditing the class. The questioner said, no, listen. I don't care if you're auditing or taking it for credit. What did you think of the lecture? 
And I'll never forget his answer. He looked the man in the eyes and he said, do you honestly believe that God is as mad as he makes him out to be? Same institution. Dr. Douglas Kelly retired a few years ago after 35 years of teaching systematic theology. Like Sproul, he's written countless books, articles. He's lectured all over the world. He holds a degree from the University of North Carolina, a degree from Lyon University in France, a degree from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And as he's retiring, he's asked one question. Dr. Kelly, what in your opinion does the church have to offer the world? In less than a second, he said, the Trinity. And then he explained, God is three persons in one God. He is not one person in one God. He's three persons in one God because God is love. It takes more than one person to express love. So God in his being is love. For all of eternity, God has had someone to share his love and reflect it back. God is lover, love, and loved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all sharing this life of love. That's who God is. That's why he's made us as he has in his image, so that we might love and be loved. That we might desire him as much as he desires us. The Trinity is the basis of everything that Christianity is. Not only is God loving, he is love in his essence. And that's the greatest thing we have to offer the world. Isn't that what you've always wanted all your life? Someone who knew you, who knew all of your secrets, who knows all of your failures, all of your weaknesses, all of your thoughts and desires. Someone who knows every skeleton in your closet and yet who loves you as much today as the day he first set his love on you. Someone who knows all the twists and turns of your life. Someone who's ordained the twists and turns of your life. Who loves you with an everlasting love that never changes. Isn't that what we all desire? You know, before Jesus, it was easy to separate God's personality from his policies, his nature from his actions. But it's not any easy, it isn't easy at all anymore. People do it, but they don't know him. 
Before Jesus, we had an excuse. Now we have no excuse. In personality, in policy, in nature, and in action, he's identical. He's the same. You know, for years I taught that God's main attribute, his greatest attribute was holiness. I'd read the Bible. I'd studied systematic theology. I'd read the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. I heard him live lecture on the holiness of God, and I heard him say distinctly, there's only one attribute of God that is raised to the third power, and that's holiness. There's only one attribute of God in the Bible where God is described as something, and it's holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the heavenly throne room, and he says, I see the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And then later, in verse 3, he says, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. That's what the angels say. But that's not the whole picture. In the scriptures, holiness is defined two ways. Divine holiness. First of all, God is absolutely other. He's absolutely separated from us. He is wholly other. And then secondly, divine holiness is always talked about in terms of perfection. So he is wholly other. He is absolute perfection, but that's only a piece of who God is. This is what God says to his prophet Hosea, chapter 14, last chapter of the, of the letter. In the midst of Israel's sin and apostasy, in the midst of them chasing after other gods, after 13 chapters of chronicling the sin and failure of the people of God, God says to Hosea, Tell my people, return to me, for you have stumbled because of your sin. Say to me, take away my iniquity. Accept anything in me that is good. For Assyria will not save us. Horses will not save us. Our idols will not save us. In me the orphan finds mercy, for I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. You know what Charles Spurgeon said about those five words, the last five words? I will love them freely. He says... Here is the body of divinity in miniature. Anyone who understands these words understands the fullness of the character of God. When God says, I will love you freely, 
He's talking about a love that doesn't flow from a wellspring of holiness. It flows from the wellspring of love. That's why Spurgeon made this declaration. He said, the wheel of providence revolves, but its axis is eternal love. And before Jesus, all we had were glimpses. All you could do before Jesus is just squint and see it. But in Jesus Christ, the nature and the actions of God come together. The personality and the policies of God become crystal clear, and they're identical. The glimpses of the Old Testament become a full and complete picture in Jesus Christ. So let's dig into a few of those glimpses and see how Jesus is the complete fulfillment of them. First of all, notice that God is unbridled love. God is unbridled love. Months ago, Henry had us in Exodus chapter 33 where God answers Moses' question. Moses says to the Lord, let me see your glory, but let, remember the setup. The chapter earlier in 32 Moses is up on the mountain. He's been away so long, they think he's dead. And so they say to Aaron, we want you to take all of our gold and our silver, take all of the gold, melt it down, and make us a new God. And he does, and it becomes a cow. Golden calf. And they begin to worship it. And God begins to judge them. He sends judgment on his people, and you'd expect that. But what you don't expect is how measured it is. God doesn't give his people what they deserve. He judges the nation, but a few of them die. And then he says to Moses, I will lead you as you lead my people to the promised land. Think of it. These are the same people who've turned their back on God, who believed Moses was dead and formed a new God. They've turned their back on the one and only God. And after his judgment, we understand it's not the final verdict. God says, I'm going to lead you as you lead my people. And, God, and Moses can't believe it. And so he says to the Lord, let me see your glory. Do you know what that means in this context? Who are you? Who are you possibly? The God of Israel? Everything he knows about God screams against what God has just said, which is, you'll have a future and so will they. It goes against everything he feels is right. He's so amazed, he says, let me see your glory. What kind of God are you? Are you really serious? 
You know what the Lord says to him? Remember the question, remember the request, may I let me see your glory? The Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Do you hear this? Who are you? I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. It sounds like a non sequitur. Moses has said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, okay, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And then he adds this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on those to whom I will have mercy. Do you hear what he's saying? Moses, if you want to know me, if you want to know my glory, I will let you see it. My glory is my goodness. My glory is my grace. My glory is my mercy. My glory is my love. The word glory in Hebrew is kabod. It means heavy, weighty. And what the Lord is saying is, if you want to know the full weight of me, the full mass of me, you don't look in my holiness. You look to my grace and mercy and love. Now, this is nearly the same request Moses has asked the Lord earlier. At the burning bush, God said to him, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And when Moses hears it after a few remonstrations, he says, who should I tell him is sending me? Remember what the Lord says? I am who I am. But here he expands it. Here he gets specific. I will let my, my goodness pass before you and I will demonstrate my grace and my mercy. Years ago in one of the Dr. Kelly's classes, he made a statement that a friend of mine who was a student in his class has told me. Kelly said, you know, if you really want to get people angry, preach the law. But if you really, really want to make them angry, preach grace. You know why? Because preaching the law gives people the implicit idea that they can keep it. Preaching grace makes it clear there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you can ever do to make up for your failure. Think of these Israelites. They're not newcomers to the faith. These are the same people who have seen the Lord part the Red Sea. They're the same people who every day ate bread in the wilderness and then meat that God gave them. They're the same people who, when they thirsted, God gave them water from a rock that followed them every day. Every night, the pillar of fire led them. 
Every day the cloud led them. Every night and day they were assured of the presence of God, and yet what do they do? They turn their back on him. They reject God. They reject Moses. They make a cow to worship. And what does the Lord do? He shows Moses' glory, his unbridled love. Second, notice that God is not only unbridled love, he's unchanging love. Malachi chapter 3. The Lord is again talking about his coming judgment. He says in verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. But listen to what he says in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. You know what that means? That means that they ought to be consumed. He doesn't call them children of Israel here. He calls them children of Jacob. You know why? Because they're as crooked as Jacob was. Everything in them deserves destruction and judgment. But listen to what he says. I don't change, therefore you will not be consumed. What the Lord is saying there is my essence is unchanging love. And therefore you will not be consumed. Because my love never changes. By the time the man was 16, he was fluent in six languages. By the time he was 62, he was knighted by Queen Victoria. He's described like this, a philanthropist, a statesman, a historian, a financier, a poet, a naturalist, a linguist, one of the most brilliant men of his day. And a week before he died, he asked that a stone be cut for his tombstone. And when they cut it, he said, I want you to inscribe these seven words. They're the same seven words that begins one of the most famous hymns in all hymnody. In the cross of Christ, my glory. And once they chiseled those words, he said, now I'm ready to go. Listen to another one of his hymns. Death and change are ever busy. Man decays and ages move. But his mercy waneth never. God is wisdom. God is love. You see, he gets it. He understands what Malachi understood. It's the best news that any person could ever get. And that is that God is love, and his love is unchanging. It's unbridled. It's unchanging. And then thirdly, it's unconditional. Listen again to those five words from Hosea chapter 14, verse 4. I will love them freely. He's talking about people who've walked away from him. 
He's he's, He's talking about people who've embraced another idol. He's talking about people who failed him in every possible way. And yet he says, I will love you freely. You know what Spurgeon said? These words strike a death blow to all kinds of fitness. If there were any fitness in us, he would not have said, I will love them freely. If we complain to him, my heart is hard, my deeds are corrupt, he will say, I will love you freely. If we say to him, but you don't, I don't feel my need of you, he will say, I will love you freely. If we say to him, but Lord, I have no desire for you, he will say to you, it doesn't matter. I will love you freely. Do you get that? Four weeks ago, I was with a friend who's been my friend for more than 40 years. In many respects, I owe him my life. He's 87. We've been through a lot of life together. A whole lot of life. He was talking about the character of God. And he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, it's almost too good to be true. I smiled and he said, that's why they call it grace. You see, he gets it. He knows the essence of God. Unbridled, unchanging, unconditional love. And then there's one more un that my friend knows. And that's the most amazing. God is a love that's unmasked. How appropriate in this day and age. John puts it this way. Words that Henry read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You want definitive proof that God is love? Do you want definitive proof that God's nature and actions, personality and policies are identical? All you have to do is look at Jesus. He is the totality of the Godhead. Unbridled, unchanging, unconditional, unmasked love revealed in the manger and on the cross. How could God not have wiped out Israel? They deserved it. How could a holy God not consume the sons of Jacob? How could a holy God not consume you and me? 
There's only one way. All the judgment they deserved and I deserved, he takes upon himself because he's love. If you get the e-newsletter, the sermon summary, this week you know that I recommended to you a movie entitled The Two Popes. It's on Netflix. It's the story of the transition in the papacy between Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis. It happened seven years ago. And while it's a fictional account of their interactions, the dialogue and the interactions and the relational aspects of their relationship was written by a playwright who looked at the sermons and the writings of both men. So they're founded in fact. At the climax of the movie when the two very different men are together. They're in a room in the Sistine Chapel, alone. They get to the heart of the matter. They begin to confess their failings to each other. This seems to come more naturally to Francis but Benedict the 16th begins to make his own confessions and then he begins to express doubt that God could ever forgive him. And it's at that moment that Francis remembers something that Benedict had written years earlier. It's something of which this conservative, rigid man needed to be reminded. It's something that we conservative, rigid men and women need to be reminded every day. Benedict wrote these words. Truth may be vital, but without love, it's unbearable. And Jesus proves it. In the manger, and on the cross. Everything that you and I have ever wanted has its root, its foundation in a desire to love and be loved. And the only place we get that perfectly fulfilled is in Jesus Christ. Everything you and I have ever needed is only found in him. in a God who is love, who is completely unmasked in Jesus. I mean, think of it. In the cleft of the rock, Moses got to see the backside of God's goodness, mercy, and grace. It's not until Jesus that we have a full frontal view of God full of mercy, full of grace, full of love. There is absolutely no distinction between God's personality and his policies. And Jesus proves it. God is love. Think about that. Amen.